I'm going to ask for your indulgence a little bit as we make our way through this section in Matthew chapter 7, because uh, this is a message that uh, we weren't actually going to be getting to until next week. So I have some rough notes for the message that we'll work through, and uh, we'll work through it together. But you remember how last week we looked at the saying of Jesus, thou shalt not judge. This week, we're going to go even deeper into the way that relationships can get off track. And and we said at the conclusion of last week's message that we're going to learn together one of the most important prayers that we can offer in the relationships of our lives. And we're going to get to that towards the end of the message. But here we are in Matthew chapter 7. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me to verse 3, here's what Jesus says. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and yet pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So today we're talking about the speck and the plank. You know, and we've talked about this in the past, that that it's easy to divide our world into two categories. In the one category, there is everybody else, and then in the other category, there's you. Kind of like two circles, the circle of everybody else and the circle of your own life, your own little kingdom. And so here's the question, which circle are you in charge of? You have dominion over one, but not the other. Which circle you're in charge of? You're in charge only of yourself. And Jesus' teaching here is not a subtle one. There's other people's faults, uh, but then there's my faults. Now, you think I'd be much more aware of my faults than other people's faults. You think I would notice my problems first, but, but they're my problems, and often I don't notice them at all, plank what plank? What are you talking about? But I have great clarity on your problems, and I love to point them out to you. And I don't take responsibility for what's over here in my own circle. On the other hand, though, I am great at blaming people in the circle over which I have no control. There is a, there's a fridge magnet, uh, and I recall seeing it, well, several years ago. It, it said, I, I didn't say that you were wrong. It says, I was going to blame you. I didn't say that you were wrong. I said I was going to blame you. You know what my problem is? My problem is someone else. My, my problem is my parents. My problem is my spouse. Or my problem is I don't have a spouse. My problem is the place where I work. Or my problem is I don't have a place to work. My problem is you. And I can see all the tiny little problems in your life, but I can't see my own great big problem. That's the plank, isn't it? The plank is this. I cannot see what's going on in me. I can't see my own habit of of blaming others or, or of judging others or of avoiding responsibility in my own problems. And people will go all the way through life and they will never see their own identity, let alone take responsibility for it. They'll never see that the real problem is them. Uh, it's so common that right now you're thinking that 
You wish that somebody were here listening to this message because they need this teaching so much. Well, the good news is they are here, but the bad news is it's you. We learn to evade responsibility and assign blame. A woman and her husband, they they were trying to teach their son about how good God is. And they were asking questions like, who made the son? God did, he said. Who made that tree? God did. Who made Big Bird? Well, God did. One morning, mom walked into his room, and it was just, it was a train wreck. Toys everywhere, clothes on the floor, food hijacked from the kitchen and spilled out. And she, she asked the classic parents' question, who made this mess? God did, he said. Where is it? that children at a very young age learn how to blame other people. It's not, I mean, it's not for me as parents, obviously. But when we're, when we're toddlers, when we're young, we learn this very early on, don't we? There's a man who went to traffic school where they learned to tell everyone what violations were happening in front of them, Uh, Amazingly enough, none of them felt really responsible for breaking the law. Uh, All they had to do was find the justifications for speeding illegally or or making the U-turn. But when it got to this man's turn, he said, I didn't stop at that stop sign. That's why I'm here. I I know I was wrong. I know I got caught. There's a moment of silence where everybody in the room actually cheered. He was the one honest man at the traffic school. You see, it's... It's that idea that this is what the church is meant to be about, that this is meant to be a, ch- a place where, where we cheer people on for, for honestly owning up to their own faults. We've said this again and again, but, but one of the cardinal declarations of a church is that nobody here is perfect. Quit looking for somebody else's speck. Start looking for your own plank. Over the past few months, one of the prayers we've looked at together is, is the serenity prayer. Um, you can look back on it, but many of you will know it by heart. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change because they live in the sphere over here. They're outside of my control. But the courage to change the one that I can in the sphere of me where my own will has some dominion. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And actually, at the end of this message, I'm going to encourage us, if we have a chance, to write down on on a little piece of paper, or if you could find it, a little plank, what it is that you would start to change. See, when God calls us to focus on the plank in our eye, what he's really calling us to do is is to take responsibility for our own life. I mean, this is a deep truth about how God has made us from the beginning. Genesis says God created all human life. And when he created human beings, he created them godlike. It doesn't mean we're gods, but it does mean that, that he left a little bit of his own fingerprint in our lives. And he blessed them. And he said, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge. 
be responsible for the world, for the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and for all living things that move over the face of the earth. God made us responsible. It's a godlike thing to be responsible, to have dominion in that little sphere that is under my control. And people, I think, are actually happiest when they have responsibilities. Isn't this why so many of us are languishing right now and dealing with despondency because we're not able to work or we're, we're cut off from the things that we used to do that matter? We're happiest when we have something to do and when our lives are purposeful. It's part of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's what we've been learning, that you have a kingdom, that that kingdom is your life, that it's God's gift to you, that it begins with your own body where you were meant to reign and be empowered and to let God be involved in the administration of your own little kingdom. How will you spend your time today? And what is it you'll decide to do? How will you treat people today? You get to decide. What will your attitude be today? You get to decide. What will you fill your mind up with today? You decide. God made people to be responsible. And in the beginning, he said, there's just one rule. This thing over here, this this one desperately worrisome part of the garden, this this area where where evil and goodness, they, they, they reach a crucible in your life, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stay away from that. So what's the first thing the man and the woman do? Notice what happens. God asks Adam, Adam, did you eat from that tree that I asked you not to eat from because you knew it was dangerous? And Adam says, yes, Lord. (laughs) That's not what he said, is it? He said, she did it. Uh, The woman, the woman that you put in here with me, she did it. She gave me fruit from the tree. I ate it. Now, God asked him a really simple question. And Adam could have said, yeah, my bad. You gave that commandment to me and I broke it. And that's exactly what God said in response. Don't blame the woman. But but no, Adam throws Eve under the bus, and it's not the last time one human being is going to do that. Not my fault, her fault. It's not just her. It's your fault, God. You put the woman here with me. Who made this mess? God did. I'm a preacher, among other things. I get the privilege of teaching the Bible for a living. I just want to tell you that, that the weight of that is, is significant in the lives of everybody who, who share that responsibility. Because for every one time we might point out the specks that are there in the world, there is this glaring mirror that's held up to our face that reflects back the plank in our own life. Some of you uh, will know or remember if you can think back to to your classes in English literature in high school or university, that, that beautiful poem that John Milton wrote, Paradise Lost, where there's this, this wonderful long portrayal of the first man and woman. What are they doing? They're blaming each other. And he ends it with these words, thus they in mutual accusation spent the fruitless hours, but neither self-condemning of their vain contest appeared 
no end. Question, were Adam and Eve the last married couple to spend fruitless hours in mutual accusation? Hmm. You know the answer to that. It doesn't mean we don't confront each other. It doesn't mean that from time to time we don't need to speak hard words to each other. We do that. But the plank that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7 is about a spirit of blame, spirit of condemnation, instead of one of, of honesty and self-examination and responsibility. Pastor, a man named Andy Stanley, who pastors at North Point Church in the States, says lots of times when a spouse with a distressed marriage comes to talk to him, all they can talk about is where the other person is at fault and how much they blame their partner. And so Andy says, you know, clearly the person who is the real problem isn't here. So here's what I suggest we do. I'm going to draw this circle. This circle represents 100% of the chaos, 100% of the pain of your marriage. And I want you to draw whatever part of this pie that represents the part for which you are responsible. And generally, they'll draw a slice that's about this big. Now, guess which slice of responsibility is actually theirs? Is it the big slice that remains or is it the little slice that they've drawn? This is me. He will say, this is how much of the problem is due to me. This is them. And this is how much blame and responsibility goes to them. And you just have this little sliver here, but that's all we've got to work with. And since them is not here, let's focus on your slice of the pie. This is the only slice on which you can really work. And here's what's interesting. He says, in almost every case, people cannot do it. People cannot work on this little slice. It just keeps going back. It's them, it's them, it's them. People get so addicted. We do this. They're so addicted to complaining about the speck in the other person's eye that they cannot see what's going on in their own life. So we might call this entire circle the pie of responsibility. This is the pie of responsibility, you can use it for a marriage. If you're married, you can use it for your work. If you're employed, you can use it for your kids. If you're parents, you can use it for your own parents, if you're children. But if you focus on this part of your life, on being responsible for what you're actually in charge of, of what God has placed under your dominion, you will grow. And you focus on the part of your life that you cannot be responsible of, that you cannot take charge of, if you focus there, you will stagnate. Focus where you can really work. And as you pray, you pray, God, change me. God, grow me. God, guide me. And this will happen over time. And your kingdom will increase. Your dominion will increase in your own life. And God wants that. If you focus on the other person, if you focus on here's what they're doing wrong, on assigning blame, again, it could be marriage, it could be work, whatever it is that they're not doing or where you think they're failing, when that happens, your problems will grow. Your resentment will grow. 
that spirit of negativity will grow and your own little kingdom gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Blame isn't productive. Blame just wastes energy. It tarnishes relationship. It poisons families. Some of you know this. It undermines workplaces and it violates love. But we can rationalize it so quickly, can't we? We can rationalize it away. It's so easy. So I think about my own life. Maybe it's true for you too, but it's so easy to fail to live with gratitude or love or responsibility with energy, excitement, enthusiasm, and faith and dependence on God and and instead to yield all those things and to blame everything that's wrong on my schedule or the tasks others have assigned on on unpredictable internet, on unfailing technology, all of it. But you take responsibility for your own life and your own little part of it. And that's God's plan for your growth. We need to say here, because we're, we're not blind to what's going on in the world, that it doesn't mean you ignore social injustice. doesn't mean you deny that you've been the victim of some horrible act of, of abuse or, or betrayal. Or you've fallen victim to a disease that you didn't ask for or you can't control. But what it actually is, is joining my own little kingdom where I have responsibility, even though it has all these limitations, joining it into God's great, big kingdom and his plan to be at work in everything. There was a brilliant thinker, a man at Stanford who was actually converted to Christianity as an adult, as an adult by, by reading about the theme of blame in literature, looking at it in history and understanding just how toxic, how, how destructive it is. And then he started to read about it in the Bible and he saw how God turned things around. Here's the idea. All people, all societies, all cultures have a custom of scapegoating. Scapegoating is the practice where we find somebody or some group to pin the blame on. Even for things that couldn't possibly be their fault. So that man whose life was changed by studying scapegoating said it's it's almost like this is a safety valve. It's like all the blame for resentment and rivalry and anger and everything that we don't like in the world, we foist it on another group. So whose fault is it? Well, it's that younger generation because they're lazy. It's the Jewish people, Hitler said, in one of the great acts of hatred in the history of the world. It's those foreigners, those immigrants, they're newcomers, they're taking our jobs. It's a lie from hell. And it places the world in great peril. One kid in grade school gets picked on because they look different or act different, because they're clumsy or or they're considered unattractive. Nobody votes on it, but somehow everybody in the class knows it. Now they're the scapegoat. It happens in families. 
where one kid in the family becomes the black sheep. And so all the problems of the family, they get heaped on that set of shoulders. That writer, Gerard, who studied scapegoating, said nations have scapegoats. For Stalin, it was the dissidents. In Rwanda, it was the Tutsi. We scapegoat people, and in doing that, we dehumanize them. And again, it's an act that comes straight from the pit of hell. In the Bible, way back in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, the 16th chapter, if you want to have a look at that, Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement. The 16th chapter, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the priest, they would actually choose out one goat chosen by the casting of lots, and it would be called the scapegoat. He would put his hands on it. He would confess the sins of Israel over it, and then they would send it off in the wilderness as a picture of the sins of Israel being removed and forgiven by God. That's where the word scapegoat comes from. Gerard says that lots of ancient cultures outside of Israel had sacrifices. Most often the sacrifices involved human beings, human victims, who were sacrificed to placate or appease the gods. They were human scapegoats. And lest we think that that's barbaric and unthinkable, don't we still do that? Isn't that what racism is at its core? The desire to sacrifice one whole group of people on the altar of prejudice, because it makes us feel superior. The idea that scapegoating a victim could heal a human problem or a community's problem was so deep that the word for the victim to be sacrificed, the Greek word, was pharmakos. Pharmakos the victim whose sacrifice healed a community. Guess which English word we get from the Greek word pharmakos? Hmm. Pharmacology. Probably why to this day nobody really likes to go to the pharmacy. I mean, thank God that it's there. We see that same dynamic. We see it work in the Bible and the story of, of Cain and Abel. Cain, unlike his brother Abel, he fails to offer the kind of genuine sacrifice that would show a love for God. He's upset, he's angry, but instead of, instead of taking responsibility, of owning up to it, of making things right, what does he do? He scapegoats his brother and he slaughters him. If I get rid of Abel, I'll be okay. In his journey through the Bible, this, this thinker, this writer, Gerard, noticed something something unprecedented, unprecedented begins to happen. These stories of blame, these stories of scapegoating would be told, but the stories are actually sympathetic to the victim, to the one who is scapegoated, that God cared more about the victim, that God condemns the act of families and peoples and nations who are scapegoating others. God said the blood of Abel cried out to him from the ground. Joseph's brothers, they scapegoat Joseph, they get rid of him. They think, well, if we just get rid of him, then things will be okay. But God cares more about Joseph. In other words, the Bible, the in the Bible, the ancient universal practice of scapegoating, of blaming others is undermined. It starts to collapse, and all of it reaches a climax in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the holy, innocent one. 
utterly blameless. He is the sinless one and all the powers that be, everything in the world that works this way, the religious leaders, the political leaders, the money changers in the temple, they all decide that Jesus is the problem. They make Jesus the scapegoat. The one man who could save him, Pontius Pilate, publicly just washes his hands and says, don't blame me. I'm innocent of his blood. And that's the way we do things. But of course, no one is innocent except Jesus himself. And on, on the cross, the cross, he, he has a way of laying bare the mechanism, the evil, the violence, the injustice, the wickedness of scapegoating. We're told in the New Testament that when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. That when he suffered, he made no threats. That instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for unrighteousness. That's what the cross is all about. In Christ's great love, he absorbs all of that, all of the hatred, all of the violence, all of the prejudice, all of the wickedness, all of it absorbed to himself on the cross. And there he makes atonement. But then in his resurrection, he says, now the way of blaming and stigmatizing and condemning and rejecting, that's over. Jesus has become against all the odds, the great scapegoat, the ultimate, the final scapegoat, the one who takes the sins of all humanity on himself so we can be forgiven. And that's why here in this community that bears his name in the church, we can say not just that nobody is perfect, but but that everybody is welcome precisely because and precisely while nobody is perfect. So here's an idea for the week. As we think about how to practice living in the kingdom. This week, uh, I invite you to say, I'm going to focus on the plank in my own eye. What's going on in the one circle of life that is within my control and not concentrate on what's going on over there, the speck in somebody else's. Instead, that plank, that spirit of condemnation that could be based on somebody else's morality or ethnicity or behavior, that thing that drives them crazy, whatever it is, their ideology, their beliefs, their generation, this thing that that divides up people and even churches all the time, I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to look at what's inside. Maybe you're older, and what that means is you think about the church as you engage with somebody's younger, and you think, well, why why don't they wear something to church besides jeans and a T-shirt? Why do they have to pierce their bodies or tattoo their skin? Why do they listen to their music so loud? But just under the surface, you understand that what you're really saying is, why can't they be more like me? And what you wind up missing out on is the wonderful spirit of adventure in them, of compassion, of idealism, of the desire to make a difference. Maybe you're younger. 
And what that means is you think about the church and you see people who are older, you think, why do they have to be so formal and so picky, so so wrinkly, so technologically incompetent? But just under the surface, you're thinking, why can't they be more like me? If you're not sure whether you're younger or you're older, by the way, it means that you're older. (laughs) So here's the idea for this week. Just stop trying to straighten other people out. Let people live. Um, Try to resist the straightening impulse. God can do it, and, and we pray that God will do it. But that's not for you and I. So this week, I give up the practice of straightening out. This week, instead, I practice taking responsibility for my own life, my my own little slice of the pie of chaos in the world. And instead of automatically getting defensive or trying to justify or excuse, this week I step back, I say, God, help me. And I own up. I say, yeah, those were my words. Those were my actions. Those were my habits. Those were my patterns and my attitudes. That's me. And this week I ask God to help me identify, Lord, what is it? What is the plank that needs to be removed? Jesus is right. I mean, he always is. The problem isn't just that we have a plank in our own eye. It's that we don't even know it's there. We need help. We need outside help to become aware of whatever it is that needs changing. The old language for this was the conviction of sin, which was a gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, maybe it feels like it's a gift that nobody wants, but it was a gift. Let me give you a picture of this, and with this little illustration, we'll close. There's this guy named Charles Steinmetz. Uh, he was an electrical engineer. He was working in the early 20th century. The guy was an absolute genius. And there was a story told about him in Life magazine that Henry Ford once called on Steinmetz to consult about a problem he was having with a huge electric generator in one of his plants. It wasn't working. Nobody could figure out what was wrong. Nobody could bring it back online. Steinmetz goes to the plant. He watches it work for two days. He climbs a ladder, he takes a piece of chalk, and he marks an X, one place on the side of the generator. He told the engineers to remove a plate there at that mark and to replace 16 windings from the field coil. And they did that, and, and lo and behold, it worked. And Henry Ford, he was absolutely thrilled until he got a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, which was a ridiculous amount of money back then. And so he asked for an itemized bill. So Steinmetz represented the bill to him with only two items, marking the chalk on the generator, $1. Second item, knowing where to make the mark, $9,999. Ford paid the bill. Every one of us has a plank. Maybe it's an attitude, a habit, a relationship. Because of it, life is just not working quite the way it should. 
My character is out of whack. I don't know why. It's the human condition. The psalmist says, who can discern their own errors or forgive their hidden faults? It's the plank I don't even notice. And so we invite him, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and make an X on our life so that we know the problem. And then we invite God to change us. The problem is most of us would prefer to go around and mark big X's on other people's lives. This week we place the X right here. Here's where we need to change. Here's where I need to be different. Here's what needs to be straightened out. This week, will you, will you join me in praying that God will, will help us figure out where to place the X in our own lives? There's something that God wants to change in me. I know that. There's something that God wants to change in you. So here at the end is the greatest relationship prayer that you can pray. And it's only three words. Lord, change me. Can you say that with me? Lord, change me. It's not Lord, change him or change her. Change them, change this situation. It's Lord, change me. Change my attitude. Change those patterns of negative thinking. Change my sarcasm with my spouse. Change the way I nag my children. Change the negative attitude I bring to work. Change that envy I can't seem to get over. Change the way I rush through every day, never pausing to be thankful. Change my my defensiveness or my stubbornness. God, show me where the X goes. This week, it's all about the speck and the plank. I hope you'll join us next week. Um, I want to apologize to Mike and Melanie Waddell, who were so faithful in joining us. And and I hope we can record the interview that we had planned to share. And we look forward to having them with us. You, you need to hear about how God is at work in their lives and at work in the ministry field in the Philippines that has become the key partner for our international, our global work. So I hope you'll join us again next week. I apologize again that uh, we came up a little bit short with our service plans and, and the music that was prepared, which was beautiful. We look forward to sharing with you again. Hum your way through the day or put on a favorite worship track. Uh, make this a Sabbath. Pray with me and pray through the course of the week that God will reveal to us the X that he needs to mark into our lives and give us the courage to change. Will you join me as we pray for each other? Heavenly Father, as we pray for each other, we also pray for ourselves. We pray for your healing work in our own lives. We pray for the revealing work of your spirit, and we admit, Lord, that sometimes we don't want it. It's not easy to be honest, to go through that fearless moral inventory of our own life. But through the strength and the power of your spirit, we ask that you would do just that. And then give us the courage to change 
that one thing for which you have invited us to be responsible, our own lives. Walk with us through the course of this week. Be with us and bless us. Desire good things, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. So, Lord, bless us and keep us. Watch over us and protect us. Be with us always, as you have promised. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen.